Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> Professor Harvey K., my friend, my brother. Let's be honest, you are a brother. This is what, week four, week five? It's starting to blend together at this point, my friend. That is a very welcoming opening. <laughs> a very welcoming opening. Thank you, my brother. Well, I'll do you one even better. Talking about Thomas Paine today, and we're kind of calling this Paine's Pioneering Arguments, which, you know, I'm a sucker for alliteration, so thank you for that, Professor K. And I'm going through your book last night, just to get a refresher, a fascinating, and I think because of your passion, a pretty quick read. You know, you say he's your hero, but I haven't heard yet in these five or six weeks really why. Like, why are you so passionate about this man? Let's let's remember, this is a guy who comes from a working class background in England, does his damnedest to keep his head above water, falls in love and loses his wife in childbirth, and then goes on through a series of careers. Sometimes he's a failure. Sometimes he's just plainly persecuted. And yet there's something about him. He's just undaunted. And I think that's really important. And then, of course, he becomes all the more politically engaged and conscious. And Benjamin Franklin, whom he's come to know in London, encourages him to come to the to what will become the United States, to, to the American colonies, and gives him a letter of introduction. And he arrives in American colonies. And I don't know if it's fate or luck or literally truly the case that Franklin's letter matters that he gets this job as the editor of a magazine. And then, of course, he, in the course of, say, you know, what is it, a year, basically, he gets he commits himself to the American cause, but no one other than Payne himself has come to see what the American cause really is. And he calls in common sense that we've already talked about. He calls for a struggle for independence. But as he once said, if it was just about independence, it wouldn't have been worth doing. And he says the real struggle is for democracy and the making of a democratic republic. And then he goes on through you know, the revolution to serve as a pamphleteer. He also served in uniform for a while, served the Continental Congress as a, the secretary of the Committee of Foreign Affairs. And when the war finally comes to an end, he takes up this passion he has for science and technology and designs an iron bridge that he hoped to build in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia specifically, he hoped to see iron bridges connect the diverse colonies that really were difficult to get from one to the other, especially in winter. And, uh, you know, Franklin then again encourages him this time to go back across the Atlantic. And he ends up not only contributing decidedly of building iron bridges, but he ends up getting swept up in the British struggle by labor and the middle class for what we would think of as basic democratic rights, which is not successful, but it's a struggle that begins and then persists into the well into the the 19th century. And he's also going back and forth between London and Paris. And in Paris, everyone knows who he is because he's the author of that revolutionary pamphlet, Common Sense. Don't forget the French themselves provided aid to the Americans without which we would never have won the revolution and the war for independence. So to get right to it, what's really amazing about Paine is he's not only the most famous radical of a radical age, this visionary radical Democrat 
and a patriot. He now, in the 1790s, with the French Revolution has exploded onto the world historical scene, the British are fighting or the British working people are fighting for certain kinds of rights. And Paine becomes, by way of his writing of two pamphlets back to back within two years, Rights of Man, he not only calls for the end of aristocracy in Britain and the end of monarchy and imagines massive social reforms, the reforms he envisions includes laying out a plan, just as he laid out a plan for the American Revolution and the making of an American constitution, he lays out a plan for social democracy, not only for Britain, but presumably, you know, for the entire world at some point in history. So my adoration of pain is a combination of many things, but I think it's mostly because, you know, look at the title that I had throughout my academic career was the Professor of Democracy and Justice. And I know that that, you know, that that was propelled by my original readings of Thomas Paine going all the way back to when I didn't even fully understand it when I was a teenager. And the guy's irresistible in some ways, though Republicans and conservatives and many a conservative Democrat probably despise his memory because of the fact that he was not only a radical Democrat, but also a pioneering social Democrat. And if people were to pick up Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, I've rewritten the story of America in some ways, because when we appreciate Paine's role to begin with, and we see the degree to which in every generation of American history, I mean, every generation of American history, liberals, progressives, radicals, socialists, feminists, and and suffragists, all the way through American history, every one of these progressive movements, right through much of the 20th century, though not completely so, uh, because conservatives now retrospectively try to lay hold of them, which is truly impossible, but you know they're full of shit and they rewrite history every time they, they touch it. And that's partly why we're doing this series, because of Hawley's effort to rewrite or at least hijack history. So Paine not only shapes the American Revolution in the course of the American Revolution and ensuing years, he imbues Americans, whether they fully appreciate it or not, with a kind of a radical, a democratic sensibility and set of aspirations that conservatives for more than 200 years have done everything they can to suppress. And by the way, Hawley's effort to hijack American history is part of that. And our task, at least as much as we can make it happen, is to kind of remind Americans that there's a story and we can tell the story in in many ways. And one way to do it is through these arguments by these people that have sometimes become our heroes and sometimes their memories have been suppressed. How's that? I love that. In fact, why don't you go ahead and tee us up? What are we going to be breaking down this week? Yeah. So I want to just start off with the social democratic argument he presents. Argument. I want to lay out the social democratic call he offers in Rights of Man. And I want to make it clear and I'll explain that this is not simply something he wrote for the sake of British subjects to rise up. It was also decidedly influential in terms of the French Revolution and had a massive, massive circulation with real political consequences here in the United States in the 1790s. And I'll try to lay out that a little bit. And then I want to go on and we can sort of cap that off with specific attention to the pamphlet Agrarian Justice, which he published in 1797. And it really is the first, first call and vision of social security, not only in this country, but on a global scale. The kings of the world, the aristocrats of the world, the rich, the big property holders, the leading clerics, you know, priests and bishops and such, they despised him and they did everything they could to suppress his memory over and over. And they lied so much about his life. And in doing so, they suppressed the radical memory of the American Revolution. Modern historians, it seems like they give Lincoln a lot of credit. He had this real growth from point A to point B. And, you know, as we're looking at Thomas Paine, and especially now as to where we are in the series, he is a full on radical proposing essentially, you know, social security in the 1700s. I'm curious how you can get 
from that starting point to being revolutionary in a really small amount of time. Here's the first thing to consider, that when he left Britain behind in, in late 1774, he had already developed an intense hostility and a sense of antagonism toward British politics, British society, British hierarchy, the British royal line, the aristocrats who, who sucked the blood out of working people, property holders. So you might say that he brought with him in this intense hostility that Britain was this terrible place and it was time to get out for him. And he arrives in America and for all of its faults and failings, most glaringly as he recognized slavery, he saw incredible possibilities in these colonies. And also he just fell in love with the, the promise of America that he ends up articulating the fact that there were no aristocrats really in America. There were no bishops in America. And, you know, the one thing that horrified him was, in fact, slavery. And that's why early on he wrote that call for, for bringing an end to slavery in America. But he also believed that Americans could do that and thus become all the more capable of realizing the revolutionary promise he saw within their own actions. Remember, when he arrived in 1774 and finally got around in 1775, he couldn't believe that Americans had actually, in essence, pulled off in a rebellion rebellion, they had thrown out British authorities already. They had not at all gone so far as to say, well, we ought to declare our independence and create a democracy. But in a very strange way, they had gone beyond that by setting up committees to regulate life in American towns and cities. As I think I said the first time we spoke about pain, kind of an anarchist dream. I wouldn't say libertarian, but decidedly an anarchist dream. Life by committee, self-regulation on a collective fashion. You know, he was deeply versed in the Bible and some aspects of the Bible horrified him, but some, I think he, he saw a real promise of, of what humanity could do. And as much as he rejected the truth of the Bible, he did see, as he understood it, that God's creation was this great gift to humanity. And in that way, we ought to be, we ought to emulate God and, you know, just treat each other, not just treat each other decently, but set up a social order in which we could wipe out poverty to whatever extent it existed. I think those are key ideas for pain. I should just read The Age of Reason, which was in the mid-1790s, he published two pamphlets that together are called The Age of Reason. And this is his attack on organized religion, on the Bible. But also, if, you, if one looks at the history, he wrote it as a defense of God against those who would try to hijack God on the one hand, and on the other hand, against the French revolutionaries, the Jacobins, who persecuted, you know, went after the Catholic Church, which he had no sympathy for the Catholic Church, but he did not believe in religious persecution of any sort. And he also thought that between the atheists and the, you know, Christian churches, that they were all trying to hijack or, or bury God in one way or the other. And his idea was, in his mind as a deist, to reveal to people what the real meaning of God was, and I'll read it to you, okay? I believe in one God, and no more, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man, and I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. I do not believe in the creed of any church I know of. My own mind is my own church. And another thing he wrote in Age of Reason, that we should move back a little bit to Rights of Man, he says, my motive and object in all my political works have been to rescue man from tyranny and false systems and false principles of government and enable him to be free and establish government for himself. And my motive and object in all my publications on religious subjects have been to bring man to a right reason that God has given him to impress on him the great principles of divine morality, justice, mercy, and a benevolent disposition to all men and to all creatures and to excite in him a spirit of trust, 
confidence and consolation in his creator, unshackled by the fable and fiction of books, by whatever invented name they may be called. So let's get to Rights of Man a little bit. He wrote Rights of Man in response to a particular booklet or book written by the very famous figure then and even now, Edmund Burke, who was an Anglo-Irish member of parliament and a philosopher. And Burke had a very traditionalist view of political and social order. And he was horrified that the French revolutionaries had, you know, sort of risen up, that the French people had risen up, and that revolutionaries had led them to basically subject the king to humiliation, eventually, of course, to the beheading of the, of the royal household. But the most important thing is, is that Burke was really afraid that the French Revolution, which was in part inspired by the American Revolution, was actually going to bring about a revolution in Britain. And he emphasized that there were certain things that you have to respect tradition, hierarchy, order, which basically was to say we have to respect royalty and aristocracy. He said these kinds of things developed over many, many, many generations, and thus we have to respect them. We have to you know, sort of cherish them. And Paine was rather shocked by what Burke wrote because he thought of Burke as at least very sympathetic towards the American Revolution, although I think Paine probably was being a little kind when he said that. Burke didn't mind Americans challenging Parliament, but he had little, little, little interest in the revolution. Kids these days just don't respect their elders. I tell you what, these kids, that's what it sounds like, Professor. Well, I guess I guess you could say that, though he knew there was a lot more at stake than just <laughs> loud rock music and stuff like that, or sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There was more to it than that. It also had to do with literally the established order being overthrown. So Payne, in response, and he was not the only person who wrote in hostile response to Burke, so did Mary Wollstonecraft, the woman who's considered the mother of modern feminism. But Payne wrote rights of man, in which he basically not only goes after Burke for failing to truly appreciate what the American Revolution proved, as Paine said at the end of Common Sense, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And as far as Paine was concerned, that the French had risen up to overthrow the established political order was a sign that his argument might well be a prophetic one. So Paine writes rights of man to remind Britishers and Europeans that the American Revolution set a precedent for democratic possibilities. But he, in the course of this, he says, you know, think of what one could do with the resources squandered on royal households and aristocratic households. And he actually proposes in Rights of Man that should there be this kind of revolutionary change or at least radical reform change in Britain, he, he suggests, listen to this, what he suggests, that they create a progressive estate tax to limit accumulations of property. He recommended raising the incomes of the poor by remitting their taxes and augmenting the sums. And by what that means, basically, is the taxes the poor pay should be given back to them and maybe even augmented, you know, increased the sums, which is not unlike what we eventually got to do in this country, earned income tax credits. He also proposes, this is interesting, distributing special monies for families with children, which becomes in 1930s aid to families with dependent children, which Bill Clinton signed so-called reform to welfare in 96, it was, I think, and basically ended aid to families with dependent children. And for that reason alone, never vote for a Clinton, unless you absolutely have to hold your nose as we did in 2016 for Hillary versus Trump. And even that was a painful thing to do. 
All the more because we should have had Bernie. Preach, my brother, preach. And even to add to that, you know, we've got with the Recovery Act, the child credit that was part of pandemic assistance. I mean, this is stuff that we are seeing right now that traces back to Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, you've got it, exactly. And then he says we need to create a system of social security for the elderly. He says we have to institute public funding of education. The conservatives love this. And of course, they're missing the fact that he's writing in the 1790s. He said there should be a voucher system for poor families. But there was no public education in those days. Basically, public education, we don't need the voucher system. What we need is support for public education. So Payne is proposing that we guarantee education for all children, regardless of their ability to pay. That's he's calling really for public education. And then he says, we need to provide financial support for newly married couples. Give them a start, right? And then he goes on and he says, and for new mothers. And basically what he's saying is we need to set up job centers. He's saying, you know, we have to start guaranteeing work for those who need it. He lays out what is clearly the foundations of social democracy. It's as simple as that. Now, he also says some very editorial kinds of things that I just adore. I just love this. Okay, listen to this. He says, when in countries that are called civilized, we see age going to the workhouse and youth to the gallows, something must be wrong in the system of government. And then he added, why is it that scarcely any are executed but the poor? It is one of my favorite quotes out of Rights of Man. And the Midwestern populace in states like Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, in those states, they used to quote this in their political speeches. You ready? This was Thomas Paine in early 1790s that later is heard in mass gatherings on the plains and on these farm fields where the populace and later socialists would gather. When it shall be said in any country in the world, quote, my poor are happy, neither ignorance nor distress is to be found among them. My jails are empty of prisoners, my streets of beggars, the aged are not in want, the taxes are not oppressive, the rational world is my friend because I am a friend of happiness. When these things can be said, then may that country boast of its constitution and its government. And the populace, as I said, this is true for in Texas and in Oklahoma, in Missouri and Arkansas and Kansas. I know in Kansas, especially, you could hear those words. One thing I want to point out to people is he may have written this when he was over in Britain and in France. But what's important is that it not only literally inspired radicalism on a grand scale in Britain and really did inspire all the more revolutionary action in France during the 1790s. It also is the case that it had an impact in the United States. And I'll, I'll tell the story. So when these two pamphlets end up published and available, Payne sends two copies to James Madison. When Madison gets them, he sends one of them to Jefferson here in the United States. And Jefferson always believed that Payne was the finest writer of the revolution. And they had become friends when Jefferson was the American ambassador to France around 1790. And he and Payne would get together regularly to, to talk politics and debate and probably to drink wine. So uh, he sends it to Jefferson. He says, I'm planning on having this published here in the United States. So Jefferson writes a note to Madison about how much these words are important for Americans to read because Jefferson is concerned that people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams are aspiring to create an American aristocracy. Publishers, the printers here, here in America, they actually included Jefferson's letter. So as a consequence, it became a huge political scandal that Jefferson was wow. pointing a finger as he did at those who were soon to be known as the Federalists. And by the way, you should know that 
Washington's cabinet, let's remember, Adams was the vice president, Hamilton was the secretary of the treasury, and Jefferson was the secretary of state. They all sat around a table. I don't know how they felt about each other. You know, you can imagine the kind of hostility. But more important than that is this literally became a huge bestseller in the United States. And in fact, it's said that as many people read Rights of Man as had read Common Sense. And out in the Western territories and Western parts of the United States, which at that point would have been like Western Pennsylvania, out in what we came to know of as Kentucky, I mean, all along the Western frontier, people read this. They call themselves either Republican societies or Democratic societies. They were generally known as these Democratic Republicans. And they organized demanding that the common people not be forgotten as this new United States develops. They were radical groups. And this becomes the basis for Jefferson's capital D Democratic Party. So Jefferson owes to Paine the fact that Paine wrote Common Sense, empowers Jefferson to write the Declaration. And now in the 1790s, Paine has written rights of man, which has empowered Jefferson to create what will eventually become the Democratic Party. So Paine's influence at the time is phenomenal. Paine is in France all through the 1790s. He doesn't come back to the United States until after Jefferson is elected president in 1800 and takes office in 1801. And Paine arrives later that year, early in that following year. Jefferson immediately on becoming president offered to send a warship to France to bring him back. But Paine didn't accept the offer because he was still convinced that the British or some other you know, naval force would try to find him on, on the ocean and, and arrest him, something like that. In that day and age, in the 1790s, there's no such thing as a political scientist, a social scientist, a historian. I mean, Paine was just literally a surprise for a start. He was pulled out of school at 13 because his family couldn't afford to keep paying for the school fees. But he was what you would call as was common among the artisan class of the late 18th century, he was an autodidact. He taught himself because he could read very effectively and he read and he went to lectures and he taught himself. But beyond that, it's the case that, first of all, to remember that for generations in this country, his memory was not suppressed among working people, not suppressed amongst progressive groups, but suppressed in schooling. So it's only really been in the last oh, 40, 50 years or so I mean, Americans have always been reading pain. I should say that students have been asked to read pain as a more recent kind of thing. And you could probably find his work today, obviously history classes, common sense, European history, rights of man. In political science classes, probably rights of man, amongst other things. In a philosophy class, and I, I think they resisted a long time philosophers before they read, but I think they take pieces of Thomas Paine to talk about as part of the enlightenment and you know those kinds of things. Paine himself was just plainly you know, a, an intellectual and a radical intellectual at that. I mean, my degrees are in history, political science, and sociology, really. And I just made a public confession. Okay. <laughs> and all my work is generally sort of people think of me as a historian and an essayist, you know, sort of a public writer. And if people say to me, well, what's your discipline? And I used to feel funny saying any one of them of the three, but I know that most of my work is very historically grounded. And a lot of it is historical research that I've sort of brought to bear on political questions today. So, so I, I say I'm a historian, but because there's a word in this country that one hesitates to ever call himself or herself. That word's intellectual, okay? It's an alien term in the American public discourse, you might say. And I wouldn't be insulted if someone called me an intellectual, but I wouldn't go around calling myself that all too often publicly. Well, it's like, you know, no one wants to say that they're a cool guy. You know, no one wants to call themselves the cool guy, Harvey. You just got to have- well, I call myself the cool- No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's funny. I, I get a kick out of that emoji 
on on the iPhones and the other smartphones. You know, the, you hit the word cool and up pops a, a face with sunglasses. <laughs> the sunglass on, guy. Yeah. Which, of course, I now fully confess for years and years and years, I, I wear Ray-Ban just because when I was a kid, I used to think it would be great on a pair of Ray-Bans, but I couldn't afford them. And now I can afford to, to wear a pair. So Our new episode title for today, Cool Guy Harvey. That's it. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. But let me, before we get too, too far along, I, I really want to turn a little bit of attention to agrarian justice. And this is a pamphlet. It's actually a very small pamphlet. By the way, people should get some a volume of Thomas Paine's writings. There's a number of editions where you can get the whole thing together. It's not all of his writings, but the key pamphlets are usually in them. And recently, for the sake of classrooms, they, some little publisher issued Agrarian Justice, and literally it comes to a total of 37 pages, in fact, it's not even 37 pages because part of it, a long part of it is an introduction. You know, it must be like a 20, not even a 20 page kind of thing. And it's very interesting reading. Again, published in 1797. What happens is Payne is in France and somebody sends him a copy of a sermon, a sermon by the Bishop Richard Watson titled The Wisdom and Goodness of God in Having Made Both Rich and poor. And this pissed off pain like you cannot imagine. First of all, it just proved him all the more how religious arguments were were worthless and dangerous if coming from clerics who try to basically take advantage of people's you know lives. And Payne says, look, it is wrong to say God made both rich and poor. He made only male and female, and he gave them the earth for their inheritance. We live in an age in which we've come to appreciate transgender sexuality and all that, but we're talking late 18th century. Let's keep that in mind. Payne's point is that God did not make rich and poor, okay? He made human beings who, because of the civilization they lived in, the word capitalism didn't exist yet, but because of capitalism or feudalism or anything else, that creates rich and poor. So Payne decided he's going to answer this bishop, and he's going to answer this bishop in a pamphlet, which is entitled Agrarian Justice. And in this, this is what he proposes. And then I'll tell you how he rationalized this. This is what he proposes. To create a national fund out of which there shall be paid to every person when arriving at the age of 21 years, the sum of 15 pounds sterling. The point is every young person, male or female, when they become 21 years of age, should be given a sum of money to get a start in life, to combat poverty. No one should be starting out with nothing in life. And then he says, they should be given this money as compensation for the loss of his or her natural inheritance because of the introduction of the system of landed property. He says, look, those who monopolize land ownership, remember 18th century, land ownership is the key basis for, for wealth and, and riches. He says, that's basically against God's intention. You can't have landed property accumulating in, in, in a small number of people's hands. That's not what God intended. God created the earth for all to enjoy and to work. So he says, those people who have that land, they owe the nation a payment. Call it a rent, whatever you want to call it. They, it's a tax. They should have to pay a tax into this national fund and that the national fund should pay every young person. I want to emphasize, Payne was a feminist, man and woman, young man and young women should all receive this payment to guarantee a start in life. And then he says, also the sum of 10 pounds a year during life to every person now living who reaches the age of 50 and to all others as they shall arrive at that age. In other words, 50 would have been the counterpart, say, to 70 today or 65. It's that's, you know, get the idea. But his point is young and old, we must make sure that they do not suffer poverty. And he doesn't do it simply for the morality of it. He sees this as a way of developing 
and sustaining the nation. Now, again, Payne is saying this because he believes that God intended the earth for all to enjoy and to be able to work and secure living in a life for themselves. And thus, those who've monopolized it owe everyone else. I read an interesting article one time about this because everyone says, well, is Payne a socialist? And I guess the word socialist, if it if it doesn't demand that Payne call for the appropriation or reappropriation of that property, Payne didn't call for nationalizing the property. He didn't call for taking away the property of the rich. What he said was, they can have it, but they owe us. Straightforward. They owe us. He's like the godfather or the father of social democracy. He's the father of, like, really the father of the United States when you think about what he did. He's the father of a democratic republic. He's the father of social democracy. Now, this too had a lot of big following. It didn't take off in the same way that common sense and rights of man did. But both in Europe and in the United States, people read it and talked about it in pubs and taverns and coffee shops. And you can imagine how that scared the shit out of property holders <laughs> when radicals, whether they were free thinkers or, or feminists or abolitionists or labor unionists or populists or socialists or all the way through, when they remembered Payne and they celebrated him every year, maybe at his birthday, or they toasted him and they made sure that his books were always in print, they didn't do it only because of common sense. They did it also because of rights of man, agrarian justice. I mean, these other pamphlets, Payne's career as a writer, he was the greatest radical of what clearly was a revolutionary age. And this is our legacy, our inheritance, you might say. Um, so basically, pe- when people say, well, you know, what kind of radical are you for calling for raising taxes and all that? You don't have to say I'm a socialist. Say, I'm a painite and I want to be a pain in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Power of the painites. Power to the painites. How Power about to that? the painites. Yeah. Every Tuesday, this man is teaching us we're just so better for it. In fact, we're radically better for it as we take back America, my brother. Next week, what's on our plate? Well, how about if next week we move into the feminist side Love of it. the American tradition. And we talk about, and make sure you've read it, because I'm going to ask you to do some of the reading, the Declaration of Sentiments, the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention. It's viewed as the foundation moment, the founding of the feminist movement, the suffragist movement, however you want to look at it, in the United States. And I'll point out how it was that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her comrades came to hold that convention. What happened in Elizabeth Cady Stanton's earlier life that led her. And by the way, people are going to hear me mention pain next week, too, by the way. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's, that's a through line every week, my friend. Every week. also want to note, and this is an interesting link, is that people should realize that the Seneca Falls Convention, there were also men, including Frederick Douglass. So we'll take care of that next week. I look forward to it. And I look forward to seeing you again. Also, real quick, by the time that these folks hear this, Professor, Labor Day will have come and gone. What should I read or watch? How are you going to spend your holiday? Probably relaxing for Labor Day. If I was down in Milwaukee, I'd go to the Labor Day events in Milwaukee. But what would I recommend for people to look at? I don't know. I would recommend people go online and ask themselves, do they know who Eugene Debs was? Okay. And a Philip Randolph. And Walter Ruther. So let me repeat, Eugene Debs, leader of the American Railway Workers, became a socialist, deeply influenced by Thomas Paine, thought he's one of the three greatest figures in human history. Then A. Philip Randolph, one of my heroes, in fact, A. Philip Randolph, who became the head of, the leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, great speech maker. His career extends really from the 1920s right through the 1960s. And we'll get to all these people we're going to get to later. And Walter Ruther, who was a socialist who came to lead the United Auto Workers in the 30s. Actually, they were Ruther brothers, but he's the most famous. It was Victor Ruther as well. And uh, 
Um, and by the way, I, I've been told by some Eleanor Roosevelt people that if Eleanor Roosevelt had had her way after her husband's passing in 1945, as politics ensued, that she would have loved to have seen Walter Ruther, the labor leader, become president of the United States. Just find out more about that. Get a little educated on Labor Day. Don't spend your day reading books. Enjoy it. Enjoy the day. But just remind yourselves of Debs, of Randolph and Ruther. And if people think I'm being unfair to women, I would suggest people also look up somebody like maybe Emma Goldman, folks like that. But those are my three heroes. Professor Harvey K. He's a professor of democracy. The fight continues, my brother. Happy Labor Day to you. Thank you for everything you're doing for us. And we will be back taking back America next week, my friend. Take care. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.